0: Would you or anyone you know be interested in the best of what we've learned from over 350 expert interviews, business expert interviews just like this one you're about to listen to? Plus, I'll share what we discovered spending $50,000 to go through over 100 years of business success research, thousands of evidence-based scientific studies on what really works. Visit bestbusinesscoach.ca for more info on how, in 90 days or less, you can get eight better business habits, or get three times your money back. That's 90 days to eight types of better business, fitness, and mindset habits. These will determine who survives and thrives in these unusual times and who doesn't. Visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. You'll discover our new business coaching and accountability program for business, fitness, and mindset all in one. You'll also learn how you can get over $11,336 in free bonuses for only one dollar. Go to bestbusinesscoach.ca for more info. That's bestbusinesscoach.ca, like Canada or California. See you there. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Arbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Craig Jacobson. Craig is one of those people I always make time to stop and listen to. Duke MBA, award-winning Infusionsoft consultant, reformed corporate marketer, he is a marketing strategist who helped create over five hundred million dollars of new revenue. He ran international sales and marketing for Johnson America, American Hospital Supply Corp and other Fortune five hundred companies. He has set up a successful sales he set up successful sales and marketing systems in over thirty countries. Recent successes include successful crowdfunding campaign which raised over one point two million for more than twelve thousand contributors, a New York Times bestseller campaign. Over $2 million of books, info products, and nutritional supplements in three months, plus bringing a bootstrap startup from $800 a week to $20,000 a week in three months. It's now a $3 million business. He also recently brought a bootstrap startup from $50,000 a year to $4 million a year. He's implemented over 200 effective marketing systems, and I've asked Craig to join us here today to share his wisdom on how to grow a successful business. So Craig, thank you so much for joining us. How you doing, my friend?
1: We will. Thanks for having me, Gerald.
0: <laughs> I you know, Craig for probably ten years. We've been in the same circles. He's always been the person when he when he comes into a room. The people that know him stop and listen. You take his advice as gospel. Uh, but Craig, before we get into any of the stuff that you're doing now, and like, how did you even get started? I mean, you've had a great career, but still fruiting.
1: But how did you even get beginning? Did you come from a family of entrepreneurs? No, my dad a lawyer. And, and it's funny because I, I applied to and was accepted at like five law schools, and I was and you know, I got a, admitted to a series of doctoral programs in economics, and then I applied to a bunch of MBA programs. And I remember back in those days, I was trying to sort out should I follow the academic route, the lawyer route, or the MBA route. And I remember talking to my dad. He said, "I I like lawyer work, but." The best work that I do is the strategy work with the businesses. That's much more interesting than the law. But even though the law is interesting, but that's much more interesting because you're dealing with psychology and people. The law is a little bit of psychology and people, but it's a lot of the the history and the precedences is the precedence. But yeah. So I kind of grew up to admire my dad's clients because many of them had worked at... Because their advice to me was, go get a job at a Fortune 500, get the best training you can, and on the dime of your employer, learn what it takes to grow and to create a business. Because most of them, when they got to about 40 or 45, the, the companies found that they were too expensive and they were out of date, so they started hiring in younger people. So that's when they right. launched their their second career that, in many cases, right you know, became multi multi million dollar businesses. Right, right. My, so my my approach the whole time working for large companies was I viewed that I was trying stuff, using the company's money and learning, yep. and I'm going to be able to keep that learning with me for a lifetime and improve yeah. on it. And that's the, that's the, the, the fertilizer of your career and the seed of your career. And then you can find something that looks like a good opportunity. plant that seed in the ground, fertilize it water it and watch it grow. But, but I've decided when I was in business school that I, I had a dual concentration in international finance, which I thought was really interesting because I was doing finance, using multiple books in multiple countries and figuring out where you want the money to be realized, where it was going to be taxed and how are you going to move money. It was like three-dimensional chess. It was, it was fascinating. But then the easy stuff I thought was was the marketing, because that was the traditional four P's of marketing, product, package, product, placement, and promotion. But the the most interesting professors that I had pointed out that it all starts in you understanding the psychology and being able to change their perception of the world. That's so powerful. That's so powerful. So what did
0: you, you went to school first and then you started working, what was the first, first Fortune 500 company? Worked at like you went from school to a Fortune 500. Like, what was your early career? What did what projects? What were you doing?
1: Well, my my first paid pro. Well, I had like part time jobs as a lifeguard because I was a swimmer, and then I worked in the night crew, we stocking grocery shelf, grocery store shelves for a while. Then actually, the so that was for a company called Jewel Food Stores. It was developed the, the concept of the combo store of Osco, their drug store, you the grocery store, putting them together to have one place for people to shop subsequently was acquired by Albertsons, but they developed this concept of the combination drug and grocery store. But I worked there on the night crew stocking shelves for a number of years because the pay was good. You know, it was kind of nice working at night cause you got to like listen to music and work. So we bleared stereos in the store, but uh, anyway, so that turned into an opportunity later when I was in graduate school, because I wasn't really promotable into management or anything. So when I was in Duke, I was offered an internship. It was normally not because Jewel only hired people from Harvard MBA, Wharton, Stanford. And maybe University of Chicago, maybe Northwestern, but it was a few schools. But Duke wasn't on the list. So I didn't, by their normal criteria, I couldn't make it into their program. But because I'd worked on a night crew, and my store managers loved me because I solved problems for them, that I was able to submit like five letters of recommendation from their managers and their company. So then I got an interview. I guess the interview went well because they offered me a job. And then after that was funny because I got to do stuff that I like to do, which is analytical work. So I got hired into this company in Chicago. And the first thing, yeah, you because know, then I'm trying to figure out like how does business work and how does their business work? So they have 166 grocery stores throughout the Chicago area. So they asked me to go figure out new markets that would be good places for them to either build stores or buy stuff. So they sent me on the road for like two months of the three months of the summer to visit every grocery store in the state of Indiana, north of Indianapolis. So I had got my car, stayed in a hotel, we'd get out. And so I was looking for the metrics that would predict what the sales were. And just did a qualitative analysis of who the people are. We also did these interesting techniques, which I'll tell you about in just a moment. But so... I had to figure out what, I had to forecast how much revenue there was in the existing stores and look at the population and the income of the area and figure out, is there anything that's a gap or anything that's a weakness that we could go into? And that would be sort of our entry into the market. And so I got to be exposed to all their data of yeah. sales of all the 166 stores. So we built an algorithm to figure out Which product sales that I could count on the shelf would help me best predict the revenue? And it turned out that the number of facings of ground beef was the best predictor because you put a certain amount of ground beef out because you don't want it to to spoil. Right. So if I could count the packages that are on the shelf, assuming a normal rate of turnover, you could guess what the meat sales were. And from that, meat sales would be a very good forecast of what the total revenue is the store. But then we also looked at the facings of dairy, the number of jars of just peanut butter on the shelf, the amount of saltines. There were six different criteria that I went into each of these stores. I had a little pad of paper, I'm walking around during the day, counting all these things. And then I did this pacing of the store to estimate their square footage. So I'd like get a, a cart and walk longitudinally from one side to the other and front to back so I can move their square foot. <laughs> yeah, I, I wondering what this guy's doing. <laughs> yeah. I got, I got kicked out of stores, and three of them uh, called the police on me, but they, I wasn't arrested because, you know, they didn't want – but the, the interesting technique is what when, when we, we did in the Chicago area is for ourselves. We wanted to know who our customers were. This was before they had barcode scanning on it. So what we did is we hired private detective agencies to come in and photograph the license plates of all of our customers and then look them up in the DMV DMV to figure out where their, where their home is. And then we could, we plotted that on a graph. I was in charge of plotting on those, those maps to figure out how far people drove to go to the store. Then we got to bring location closer. Yeah, you could figure out. Where they were going, where they lived, you know, but that's just a way of thinking. I love those guys. It was really interesting. Right. And after that summer, that's after that summer, they offered me a full-time job in their real estate division to be able to do more of the mapping and plotting and, and data analytics of looking at competitors stuff. But I didn't want to do it, but it wasn't really interesting to me. And I, I, I learned a lot from them. I bet. But I, I, liked, I liked how you can think differently about where you're going to locate a store Everyone else is like, lick their finger, look where the wind is blowing. We're gonna put a store there, we're gonna put it there. We we could go look at a piece of land and say this location is gonna be worth two million dollars a week, but the the store on the other side of the street is worth a million dollars a week. Because if you knew where they're driving and where they're likely to turn, yeah. Because people people have predictable behavior. We they like making right hand turns. We don't like making right. left hand turns. Right. So if there is a natural psychological barrier, like a railroad track over the over the street, I mean, like a the boulevard, mm-hmm. a big street, not a small street. If there's a psychological barrier or off of it, you'll see like half the people won't travel beyond that barrier. Yep. But if you have if you have a location on the other side, you'll gather all those people.
0: Yeah, that's a real thing in my hometown. Growing up in the nightlife district, there it was a, like a one way street. And there's a, there's this great spot in the middle of the busiest part of the downtown, but I saw six or seven businesses, nightclubs, restaurants, try to make it work. And none of them can make it work because it was, it was out of your view, driving down the one way street, everything else around it was prospering, but that one everyone, everyone was like that location's cursed. And that's exactly, exactly what it is. It was just a, like a blind spot. When people drove down that strip, they just couldn't, couldn't see it. And the people would open it, but they, it, you know, a couple of years they close and then somebody else would try to do something and a couple of years ago uh, and go by, it would close. I love the analysis. That's so such a, what a, what a great way to bring you into the world of really getting like grassroots on the ground, knowing the people's license plate numbers. Like talk about market research. Like that's just beyond what most people, most people are like, I think, like you said, they lick their finger, put it in the air. You had Photographs, like the 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 level of due diligence already is phenomenal, in what you just explained.
1: So, and I and I will tell you an interesting thing is one of the sub projects that I got now on with them during that summer, and they continued while I was in graduate school to get me involved in this Aldi, which is a retailer out of Germany. albridge Corporation was the dominant grocery store chain out of Germany. So they moved. They created a product which was the highest volume products out of the 40,000 SKUs that we sold in stores. Wow. So, I mean, they they selected the 2,000 highest turnover products, sold them in the original packaging. So you didn't have to take the labor and the razor blades to open up the boxes and put them on the shelf and keep them nice. They just put them up on the shelf. They worked very well in Germany. Hmm. So what we noticed, we were able to see a blind spot that they Yeah, they so in this two thousand square foot store, low price, high velocity, high profit products, brilliant strategy. So what they did neighborhood like sort of you know, they The workings that their customers were driving forty miles. Going past ten different grocery stores to come to Aldi, but they were oh. they were living in the affluent neighborhoods because the affluent neighborhood people were willing to make the drive to save money, kind of like Costco. But like all, it took Aldi years to figure out
2: that they should locate their stores near their customers. Oh. Craig, you there? I think we have a hiccup in the internet. We're just going to go do it. Interesting
0: lesson for me. Yeah, that is a super interesting lesson. I want to ask you a quick question about this. So you're talking about this due diligence and this research and understanding your customers so well. How does that translate in today's day and age? How does that translate to today's world?
1: Well, if you imagine, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. So my first looking at what would be a heat map was the plotting of customers and who is willing to drive to which stores in, in communities. And so I think when I look at heat maps, which I look at pretty much every day, I look at probably 20 heat maps for different clients stuff. And I look at how people are going down a page and what holds their attention and what if I put something there, I lose them. Like that's sort of like the driving behavior in neighborhoods. Because it's these are just manifestations of the psychology of us human beings. And so I, I see that that is being directly strictly similar. But if you can understand your competitor better than they, they understand themselves, you can see some opportunities they haven't yet seized some. So they all brudged originally was they lost some, some of their excitement with their Aldi brand. They they've since found it because they started looking at stores in affluent neighborhoods, but their next big push in the United States is they bought a company that was already with a limited with a 2000 square foot store with a high volume products. They didn't use major brands, they created all private label brands. And that was a company that was called Trader Joe's. And so they they acquired and then they Trader Joe's customers were in the affluent neighborhoods because they liked the cheap wine and the, the specialty products, but all under the Trader Joe's brand. So it was a different flavor with the same impulse. But that hit the mark in the way that the, how they mismanaged the original Aldi launch. But if you can see that by by going to the effort, spending The minorities lie because there's opportunities around it for all of us. So, I mean, I I view my 30-year career in marketing. I started off doing a lot of analysis. Well, I've done analysis my whole time, but I was really a geek freak. Like, who does that? I've never... ...career. And now everything that I was doing then, we do automatically for regular businesses. You look at RF... Dem analysis for your customers. You look at time of day, day of the week. You do geographic plots to, who, to see where they live, what kind of houses they have. All of those things translate. But the big impulse isn't the tools. I think the big change is in the minds of marketers. That stuff that was odd is now the norm. It's now almost required. I mean, I mean, what is it? What's everyone's mantra? Know your customer better than they know themselves. And then you can find a way to get your traffic in front of them, your, your, your ad or your social post or whatever. And then you, you grab their attention and then you make an offer, right? It's very simple. Yep. Yep. The, the, the techniques have become less expensive but, and more effective too, because in, in the world that I lived in before that, that was before cell phones. I mean, cell phone data is, is a, is a gold mine. Because mm. everyone's got their, their cell phones with them all the time. Sure. So, if, if if you can find where somebody drives, because most people go to the same 10 places. If you know what those 10 places are, you have many opportunities to to understand them and stage offers along the way.
0: I love that. I heard a uh, runway. I don't know if it's real or not, but. Procter & Gamble is a, a, a massive company with lots of sub-brands. And I heard that at the hospital, you can get the, the welcome baby package or something. Like when you have a baby at the hospital, you can opt in to get this bundle of, of diapers and food. But when you opt in, they add you on your list and they now have a day zero of that child's life. And that in terms of lifetime customer value, they've got offers for you throughout your entire existence from and every
2: phase: new parent, right, baby's first steps, three year old, ten year old, twenty
1: year old. You know. Yeah, and and I think what that points out is that's a big company smart about creating first party proprietary data. But the interesting thing is, you can assemble. If you're a small business or a startup, you can buy data from from first part from third party sources that'll have people that are recently pregnant or newly new parents, new homeowners. I mean, during COVID, I had a project for somebody. I was looking for someone I was looking for, which we, we, we got a list of 3,000 people that had, had family members die from COVID. Wow. I that's mean, huge. We didn't have the death certificate, but we had a a very good chance to believe that they, that they, that their family member had perished from that. Right. 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 So, so what that points out to me is the big thing I've seen during my time. Originally, if you're going to go build that data, it all had to be proprietary in today's world, you can buy it, but you just have to understand that that the data can make you smarter and highly effective at being able to tell a relevant story to somebody at some time.
0: Yeah, I love that. Because for me, I I grew up, you know, I know there's charlatans in the world and snake oil salesmen, but I grew up with problems solve, uh, businesses solve problems, that problems are markets, not demographics. And so a business should solve a problem. Like if you could cure arthritis, that's very valuable. And then it's a catch-22 because there's privacy laws. But at the same time, if you can solve that pain for people, how do you find everybody suffering from that? So it's a double-edged sword, right? We want to protect our privacy, but at the same time, if I have arthritis, if I'm in pain every day, if I have sciatica, and I'm suffering every day, and someone figures out a cure, I want them to find me. So it's this catch-22. Can you talk a little bit about enhancing your customer data to learn more
2: about them? And then where do you go and buy this data? Where do you get this data?
1: Okay, well, I'll tell you. So if I have their email address, I mean, it depends on the, my original first party source data. Is it an email hash? Is it a reverse IP? Is it a mobile ID? Or is it an email? An email is probably the easiest to enrich or probably the best to enrich is a phone number. Because an email, you, you have multiples, but you probably only have one or two phone numbers. So it's more likely to be you and the, the data sets that have been built are probably more accurate. So there's a series of third parties my, I think one of my favorites is a data Zap out of Florida. I, I can give them either an email hash, which is an encrypted email or an email, and then they can append on top of it as many fields of behavior data or demographic or thermographic data as I would like to buy. Usually each field costs about a penny. Some cost three or four cents, but. What that name? Data zap.
0: Zap, data zap. Okay.
1: So you've got your, the other business. thing. oh, sorry, good. Don't let me interrupt. So okay. what I was, so was going to say is the first thing I do with any business, I ask, I ask, ask them, who are your customers? Because you've got people that have purchased your product. How many people purchased? Tell me about who they are. That's the qualitative data. Then I said, I'm going to have to, as a first step, say, give me your customer list. I take that customer list, run it through data zap, pen on a hundred fields of information that I usually find interesting or valuable you know, age, gender, income, political party, race, ethnicity, gen, medical stuff. I mean,
2: depending on what their customers
1: really are. And then if I'm going to make a decision, if I'm going to work with somebody, then, then I go back to the data source because now I've got a model of who the customer is. So I, I want like 45 year old women, college educated, Seventy-five thousand dollars or more household income, living in two-bedroom, three-bath houses in the suburbs of, 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 of in the United States. So then I can go to a data provider or a series of data providers and say, "I've got, I've got thirty thousand of them. I've got ten thousand. I've got a thousand of them. How many more like that do you have?" So I give them that that profile and buy the email hashes that are anonymized of those people. I can load those in and advertise to those people with the same offer that the business has so I can get more just like that. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I think that's a really smart spend of money. Oh, yeah. You have to have a good, but the buy is bad if the data definition isn't good. Right. So in many cases, I I buy the data to enrich it from three different sources to be sure that they're really women, they're really this age, they really are homeowners because you don't know how good anyone's data is. Right. 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 I think that if I can buy the same data from multiple sources and they all point the same way, that's a thirty-five-year-old woman with three children, college-educated. I don't care. You know, ethnicity usually doesn't matter. Religion usually rarely matters. But uh, yeah, that's powerful. Then I've got the, the the concept, the model of who their ideal customer really is, and and, and probably half the time I talk to people and say. I go through this reveal of showing them who their customers really are, according to data. And, and if a client says, no, those aren't my people at all. <laughs> I Go back and double, I'll go double check it with the data sources to make sure that other data sources confirm that that's who they are. And if not, I don't know if I want to work with those people. Cause they're, they're, gonna a concept to their cut. They, they have a concept of who their customers are and how they're talking to them. But it may not serve us to be able to scale the business. So, you know, there's kind of this question: Is there some money there? And with people that are fighting the concept, of who their customers are, if they if they if they're like an online business that hasn't met their people, yeah, well, maybe the only people they've interacted with people with are people that, are, that really like them that want something from them that call them or complain. Yeah. So they they have a limited data set of all their customers. So, yeah. they formed their concept on, the, on a very small data set. If they're firm, that's who their customers are, and the data proves otherwise, why wouldn't I want to work with them? Why would yeah. want anybody work, want to work with them? Yeah. That's so powerful. That's how I had
0: my first client do over a million dollars. I was working with a client. They did, we did a webinar launch. They had a ton of partners that promoted for them. We were able to generate thousands of registrants for this webinar. We got a few hundred sales of a $1,000 online program. And then I, what I did is I took that and I didn't know about enriching data and all that. But at the time, this is like 2013, 2014, Facebook. I could upload them to Facebook and do a lookalike match. And I did that. And but through the lookalike and keeping it as tight as possible, we went and scaled that till we were doing $100,000 a week. You know, and so I think like what you just just gave here is such a huge knowledge bomb for everyone. Again, you may want to go back and listen to that again because what Craig's really talking about is just, crystal clear understanding of who your best customers are. Maybe not, you've got a list of, I've done this with another client. They had a list of like 20,000 buyers. We narrowed down. He mentioned, Craig mentioned RFM, which is a way of sorting your database for like the 80, 20, the best performers. And then you find out who's your best, who spends the most money, who loves your stuff the most. And you really get crystal clear on who those people are and why they might be buying. And you can even test the whys in your marketing or just contact those people and ask them, interview them. Now you've got something that you, like you said, you just go and find another thousand people like that. And I think that that's such a powerful, powerful thing. Craig, I want to pivot a little bit though and ask about in your career, what were some of the biggest challenges? Like you almost started with this from your beginning, this sort of like intense due diligence on who the customers are. I mean, that sounds like your first position we talked about with all these grocery stores, you were doing that kind of stuff. So you've been playing that game for such a long time. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced in your business career? Was it areas around getting that data, that or Were there other hurdles? Like looking back, do you think that there was tears? First I had to learn this and then I had this problem, but then I learned that. And, you know.
1: I don't know if there's any few big ones I just it seems like life is nothing but problems that, you, that you've got to figure out how to solve <laughs> so it's the biggest problem the ones that, I, that I've never been able to solve because I have a few on my list but I, I still don't know how to do it that, and that would turn into a different type of conversation with us okay but, but
0: well, what would you recommend then to someone starting out or someone that's struggling
1: well I mean the key to success is matching a couplet of an, of a person and a story that's going to grab their attention and then to be be able to make an offer. I mean, marketing is actually at its core, very simple. It's choosing a targeting of who the, who is the most important thing. If you've got customers that purchased your thing, then the question is how can you So that means you've got a story that goes from engagement to then the offer process where they're going to then buy something. So that works so then how can we scale that? And you talked about something, which is really good. It's, it's what I do for your small business, you know, give me your customer list, do the enrichment, look at who they really are, and then I can do a third party lookalike of it. So here, I've got an example of somebody that gave me a thousand people that purchase their product because they've been in business for years. They've done millions of dollars, but they I had a thousand email addresses. So we enriched it, added one hundred and fifty characteristics to it, and then did a third party look-alike on top of it. And based on that criteria, we were able to push that up to about forty five thousand people that were look-alike from the third party look-alike AI tool, right which I'm not going to name, and then and then, and then, we loaded the, both the original list into Facebook and had Facebook create a lookalike on top of it, which is which is the customers are are the layer of the audience one, and the the lookalike from Facebook, which was about fifteen thousand. We they were there were like it, and I took the lookalike from the third party, pushed that in. That was about forty five thousand, and then created a lookalike on top of that. 99% look alike, or the 1%, I think they call it look alike of the 45,000. And that got me 270,000 people. They're 99% like the original people. So then I've got four different layers that I can expose their current messages to and see who responds to which flavors the message. So I think one of the important ideas is we don't know because what marketing is, is grabbing people's attention with, um, with some sort of message. And then holding their attention long enough till you can make an offer. And so I don't know which, in which message will appeal to each of those different audience layers or those different audience types. So we create a horse race of 10 or 20 or a hundred different messages of, of ad messages with different elements of their story or benefits. Like, oh, I have this problem. I want, really want more of this, less of this, that kind of stuff. Create a bunch of horses, run the horse brace against those core audiences that just described. And at that point, I've got the couplet of an audience and a message that works, that creates money and gains people's attention. And then I also know the cost per click and cost per customer from each of those layers that tells us to then start to worry about the second level of focus. Because, you know, when you go back to take the original customer list, I could take the, I usually take the people that did a one-time purchase because there's a lot of those and the fewer, the p- fewer list of people that purchase purchased multiple times and it create them for that small group of multiple purchasers and duplicate the process I just talked about creating a lookalike because I'm, I'm actually yeah, kind of surprised. I mean, this is, this is one of the struggles because before somebody's made revenue, they don't know if something's beneficial. All right, if I need them to spend spend money to enrich the list that they swear that they don't know who these people are to disabuse them of their their uh, misconception you're going to spend money from a third party to then enrich that list to look at who their customers really are and be able to dissect the process so that so you yes you got thirty thousand customers you got three thousand that have purchased more than one time and 27 thousand times 27,000 purchased one time. So then we create the multiple purchase people, the look of the third party lookalike of it, and then the Facebook lookalike on top of that. And then, and then the, each the lookalikes of each of those. So that's three core audiences with two lookalikes. So that's six audiences and see which messages those people respond to. And are you starting to see differences in their behavior? So will they respond to slightly different stories?
0: Now, I I want to clarify something here because you talk about storytelling so much. You two-step everything, whether it's e-commerce or not. And what I mean by two-step, you've got two stories. One is you you designate some sort of qualifier for a lead, whether it's they visited the web page or or who knows what they watched a certain amount of your content, but you don't go. And that's one thing I'm saying this, I feel like I know this, but I'm saying it to clarify for myself and for people here, because I know a lot of people think advertising is you put up an ad, like a coupon, and you run that, and you aim it at people, and you shove it down people's throats, but you seem to be very clear on, not just getting clear on the target market, but then having a two-step sales process, where one is just getting attention and figuring out who's interested, and then a next step where you take those interested people and convert them to buyers. Can you speak to that a little bit? Like that process or we differentiate
1: yeah. that? Uh, yeah. I think that's, that's the normal struggle is it's usually easier to get people to page than to get them to buy. Right. And so then, then what you're trying to figure out is, is this story, does it not have enough meat on it that I need to add more content and talk about something that we haven't discussed? Do we need to raise the objections Do to, to get some social proof? What, would make the story more robust. It would sort of give the the fatty sensation of satisfaction that they would then convert, or do I, or do I get there by taking stuff out, focusing their attention? Because in many cases of marketing, we're trying to talk, try to ask people to do too much. People are very simple, oh. and 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 so in many cases, less is more. So first, I start to trim off every little element and see what happens when I take any reference to this off, maybe it might be a certification, it might be a social proof symbol. If I take it off, does it just do the interaction rates or the purchase rates drop, or If I add it back in do they come back. And then, then I, then I've got a split test that I feel has told me that this is an important portion of the, the core story. Can you really
0: assemble this data point by data point? I love that. Again, for people listening, you probably want to listen to this interview a couple of times. Think about how method, 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 I don't know why I'm having a brain fart with this word. How systematically Craig goes from identifying the profile, breaking down the message and analyzing what's getting attention, AIDA, attention, interest, desire, action. How much is getting attention and interest and then where is that interest taking them? Hopefully somewhere where you can have A more one-on-one conversation, like you can't sell in an email. You got to get people from the email inbox onto a page. You can't necessarily sell. You got to get them into your booth, right? You can't sell to people walking by. If you're at a trade show, you got to stop them, engage them. And then, Hey, come, come here, come to the second location and have a seat and whatever. And then what's that conversation? I love that. I love that. I love that so much. Now, what do you feel are some of the best habits? Before maybe I talk about that, what are some of the biggest mistakes? Because you've already talked about you've people and they've got maybe twenty thousand sales, but they don't know their customer. How do, like? How is that even possible? What are some of the biggest mistakes you see clients and other entrepreneurs making that really get in their way?
1: Well, I think by far the the biggest one is the sin of the inaccurate assumption. Something that you know is true, but it's it's true it's not. Because people don't want to spend energy or money to uh, to validate their current beliefs. Mm. they should because that was true once. and the question is, is it still true? because that that in many cases is something that that limits the business owners or the the marketers right BPs okay. so the 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 most expensive thing in any business is the sin of the inaccurate mistake right, right. I I, I,
0: I, I, feel, I feel like I just said this recently where some people, they fail in business because even though they're struggling, they do the same things they're already doing, just harder. But the issue is they may not even need to work harder. They just need to, to do something different or recognize something is wrong. And I feel like you're, you're articulating that. I just had a meeting with my team yesterday because help, we're helping someone. And that's what I was saying. I feel like this person's just doing the things they know how to do harder, but that's not going to solve the problem for them. They actually don't even need to work harder. They just need to do something slightly different. That sounds like that's
1: exactly what you're
0: saying.
1: And the, and, and the, the most difficult thing is how do you do the same thing? Three different ways. They're not the same way.
0: Ah, I'm writing that so down for
1: me, for me, that's all about changing the frame that that, that, that story lives in.
2: How do you do what the same the thing three different ways?
1: That's, that's hard. Yeah. So, well, this is where the language of marketing that I grew up with really, it really isn't developed. So I, I think of if I told this story in a, in a genre of one, one type of music. So we did it as grunge rock and it's popular. If we took that same grunge and did it as big band, if we did it as jazz, if we did it as gospel, what would be the effect of it? Because you've seen with music you can take the same the same song and, and read, remix it, rearrange it in different genres, which is sort of like a psychological frame. So how could we take the story and change it from the frame that it exists in and do it in a different frame? Would that appeal to more people? It's funny. I was talking to a friend, actually one of my golf buddies. He's a, a financial financial planner kind of guy, very good at what he does, but he's invested all this money in using this analogy of that. You're going to try to climb Mount Everest. So you're going to have to plan it in advance, have the resources. You're going to need some tools to do it. And you need a Sherpa. And you know, I was talking to him. I said, do, is, okay, that, that is appealing to you, but do really most people want to climb Mount Everest? That sounds like a lot of work and it sounds scary. So because you chose that because you like it and it appeals to you, do most people view that they want to climb Mount Everest on their way to retirement? Is that really the right <laughs> <story>? <laughs> To retire, we're going to have to climb Mount Everest and
0: you may freeze to death. You may die. You may, may come back with a limb that needs to be amputated.
1: Sign up now. But the comment to me is, that might be right. There might be more relatable stories that would be more easily understood about planning, provisioning, and executing, and having a coach to help you with it. But that's the one that I like. I've invested tens of thousands of dollars in it. I'm now twenty years into it. I can't change. It's like, well, Let's use it. a golf analogy. You're-,
0: <laughs> You're gonna go out for eighteen holes. You got to fill your cooler right? You're going to take your shot. You got to aim where you're going to go. There's so many easier way easier analogies, but I get it. That's
1: hilarious. Yeah. It, it's, we get locked, we get locked into a frame, a way of looking at the world. And that is the greatest limit to us. If we could change that and kind of have, do the same things, but sitting in a different frame, it might be more relatable and you might get more and more people that will want to go on the journey with you. And you
0: might get to the core of what, what really is moving the needle. I think that's important. Yeah. Now, Craig, you, you've seen so many changes and evolutions. What do you feel is coming in the future? Like we're, we're entering a new era of technology. The world's just been pushed online in a very forceful way. Where do you think this is going in three years, five years? We've got a bit more sophisticated software and surveillance. What, what do you think it's going to look like in three, five years? 10
1: years of marketing. I don't know. I'm not a good forecaster in the future. I just, I mean, I have my beliefs, which is what you're trying to figure out is what do people relate to? If you can understand what they relate to, what they like and what they don't like, and if you know what, what problems they're in market to solve, you 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 know what to do with those people. And then it's a matter of just choosing a message and and a channel to to reach out to them. I think there'll be new channels that that, are, that evolve. but I but because of what's been going on with data enrichment and AI and ML, companies are going to be biggest companies are going be, be going to become much more efficient. At it. I mean, already a trillion dollars a year is being taken out of the pockets of small businesses. That don't understand data enrichment and ML and AI and put in the, the the money, it put that put in the pockets of the big companies. But th- that's that's just the first rate because those businesses have to hire data scientists. But almost everything that they do is now available for just a couple hundred dollars a month from a variety of vendors. And I think we're gonna see those become more popular. But the biggest problem that I see is that small business owners that I've talked to do not understand that privacy doesn't exist as they yeah. as they think it does. I mean, yeah. the doc- your doctors, your hospitals, sell your data and make money on it. Even if it, your record is passively sitting in their system, they're yeah. monetizing your data. Yeah, They're making generally about $1,600 a year just by having your medical records parked somewhere. So I think where there's gonna be movement as people become aware Cause generally they say, no, 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 I want privacy rules, but that's not gonna happen because our, our system marketing in, in the world, all counts on the use of that data. So yep. that, I mean, they think Facebook is the, is the culprit and Facebook's not the culprit, you can't buy data from Facebook Yeah. I and mean, they used to be. Uh, tools, they used the to have great tools. The hot is the tools. Yeah. Out. Yeah. You know, Yeah, but, but, but they're done with that. Yeah. But but they were buying data from Axiom, the data, the data, the Visa MasterCard providers from the cell phone companies, which are all the great places. So there'll be more, more of that data available in smaller bites. It'd be more tactically usable without the, the small business owners having to, to do this, because I know when I, I I have a friend that has a, a chain of restaurants here in San San Diego, Surf Brothers, they're asking me, now that the pandemic has hit, much of many of our competitors that were doing quick serve fast food have gone out of business. What should I do? I said, well, we can go back and do retrospective geofence on each one of their locations and pull out the mobile IDs of all of their customers because they were married to a restaurant. They used to be satisfied by it, but they're sort of free agents now. So why don't we go create audiences of those people, offer them messages, talk about your food, but you're going to have to talk about your food in relation to that because that's a chicken place that went out of business. You have chicken. So talk about your chicken to those people that were over here and, and we're still around, but that's so powerful. but that, some, somebody could create that as a product and sell it to those people. Because right now, when you carry on the conversation about retrospective geofencing and data enrichment and using that as inclusion criteria for audiences, it just goes over the head of people. You may as well be talking about multiverses and you know, it, matrix.
0: Right. So a couple of things for people listening that maybe did get lost. Craig was talking about ML, that's machine learning. So data enrichment, machine learning and AI and retrospective geofencing is that you can use with some ad pl- ad platforms, you can kind of create a, like a, 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 perimeter, a line around the geographic area and then show ads to people in that area. Like if you were, you can't, I think you can't target hospitals per se, but if you were an accident injury lawyer and you could target around the emergency room of hospitals to show those people your ads, right? Like that might be an effective marketing strategy for you because not only are you getting the right message, you're like you getting message to the right people at the right time. Like they're sitting in the waiting room doing nothing, but just on their phone waiting. Like that's a great time to try to reach those people as well. Like when they're in the pain. So, and what Craig's talking about is retrospective, meaning that you can make those perimeters And target people that have gone to conferences in the past and target those people with an offer now. That's so
1: powerful. That's such a powerful thing. Yeah. But but talking about futures, let's imagine that you, who are a a family law divorce attorney, what if you could sign up for a service that, that only advertised to people that own a house, that they live in and they spend some time there, but they spend less than 30% of their nights in that house. They're sleeping somewhere else and they sleep at their home. That would be your inclusion criteria. You can do that manually with coding today, but then that's your audience of people that you're going to talk about. Here is what it takes to be able to start your divorce proceedings for X number of dollars, but you know, they're homeowners. So they've got some money. That's the attorneys like they have a family, which the enrichment could show you that you could see that there's two people on the title to the house who they have a trust, but they would be, and they're not sleeping at their home routinely. They're spending said 60, 50% of their nights, not at home. They're either very busy, which would mean they might be a good candidate yeah. or their, their marriage isn't solid, but yeah. That would be a hypothetical example of combining data in an easily consumable tool for a specific niche.
0: Right, which is so powerful. So powerful. And again, if you're going to spend your marketing dollars, you can just blanket broadcast to anybody and everybody walking on the street, or you can have that sort of pinpoint accuracy. Talk about an improvement in effectiveness. That's powerful.
1: That's so powerful. So... So you're you're targeting them because of a little bit of demographic and psychographic characteristics, but mostly based on their behavior. Because their behavior doesn't lie. So well put, behavior doesn't lie.
0: Craig, I always love talking to you. Every time we talk, like it's just so again, people understand now. Hopefully, if you listen to this interview, you understand why when Craig walks in a room with people, people always want to know what he's got to say and what's new on his radar, because he's just in it and the most powerful and impactful ways. We talked about some great stuff on this call. I just want to recap for people. First off, we talked about, first off, really knowing that all your people are, enriching that data to make sure to validate your assumptions. We also talked about how the who is the most important thing, but then there's two parts of the marketing. There's the attraction story, and then there's the conversion story. We talked about you know creating lookalikes and layers of audiences where maybe a one-time buyers versus multi-buyers talked about RFM. Then we also talked about taking, what else we got? Validating your current beliefs, talked about looking all over on my notes, trying to prove your assumptions. Like you talked about grunge rock versus grunge big band versus grunge jazz. So if you assume something is real, testing that three different ways. How do you do the same thing three different ways, you know, to really test that assumption? You said you love using heat maps so you can really see what, what's getting people's attention on a page, where they're where they're being lost. You talked about setting up horse races that once you really know who and that you validate this three times over, you like setting up horse races where you've got 10, 20, even up hundred different stories and ads of the benefits or case studies that you're testing and you have standards of excellence that are in your head that through all your years of experience to know that if we run these 20 attraction stories, you have like a benchmark. You know what a winner looks like versus doesn't, right? Where a novice maybe doesn't really know. They're going to run these. And they're like, I, I don't know which one's good and bad because it's not even necessarily driving a sale yet. It's just attracting people. And then yeah. through that, optimizing that with things like machine learning and AI, and even now enhancing other things once you have these learnings, like the behavioral modding, the geofencing,
2: is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you about?
1: I'm sure there's a lot, but the but that's, we leave an hour to talk. If we go hang out for a couple hours and mm-hmm. have a drink, I'm sure that we could explore the rest of the things we should have talked about.
0: Yeah. I remember when we were at one of those conferences on the Infusionsoft community, I'd asked you about business law and you told me to study real estate law, that it was a great way to understand you know, like a rental property is almost like a business in itself. And if you learn the law for that, it translates over to business, not perfectly, but it's a good, it's a good kind of 80, 20 for your time ROI. Craig, you got so much knowledge. If people are, have been listening to this, if they are so fascinated, they want to know more. I know you, can you talk about your meetups that you do? Because I think those are incredibly valuable for anyone that can attend those. And then plus, how do they get involved that they think that they've got a Meet business? Up. If there's someone that's doing about a quarter of a million dollars a year, if they know their lifetime customer value, and if they want to talk to you about possibly working with you, what does that look like as well?
1: Okay, well, they come to my website, fill out the form. You go through a discovery call. Mostly I'm looking to try to figure out, do I think I can make money with them? Because my model is to make money with people, not make money from people. We work on on. Our, low fee, and then we get a percentage of the increase. So if they're not willing to share the increase, and I don't think there's a good chance of being able to move the needle because they don't want to dance. They work, they don't want to date enrichment. They don't, they, they're just firm. And these, are the people I want to talk to, this is the story we are of to go with. It's like, you're not my guy. So there's more ways of not choosing to work with somebody, but if they come to openspacesmarketing.com, just fill out the form, schedule an appointment, we can chat. What we've talked about here, I'm gonna ask those questions and a few yeah. others in my meetup. So I think that we have a responsibility. If you're on the cutting edge of marketing, you understand how to actually create business growth. You have a responsibility because I didn't learn this by myself. I learned this from a hundred suggestions from well, ten main mentors. None of them sell education, or coaches, they're just practitioners down in the weeds. So I've learned what most of my most valuable things from people. They've been very kind and generous to show me what I don't know. And so I decided that I would pay back those people that I otherwise can't pay back by paying it forward to others. So I, I started 10 years ago, a meetup group at a restaurant in, in San Diego, which during COVID, I moved it to being online, it's a Zoom meeting. It happens on Friday mornings in San Diego from 7.30 to 9.30 in the morning because the only people I like to talk to are people that work in the morning. <laughs> I know that, that creates problems for people, but but those are the people that pick up and do stuff. And so I don't want to waste my time with people that just want to talk and argue and
2: mm-hmm.
1: prove they're smarter than me because everybody's smarter than me because I just run experiments and see what works. But that that is called meetup.com small Business Steroids. I think I've done, I've had about 6,000 people that have been through the meetup so far over the last 10 years. I think I've now done about just under a thousand meetups over the 10-year period. That's fantastic. Um, But I feel it's a way to give back because everyone's trying to sell you some shit. I have nothing for sale. I can just show you how to think differently, behave differently. And if you've been there, you come away with this skepticism and this appreciation for measurement, good story and data enrichment. Those are probably the three things that open people's eyes. But many times we get off and I show people just how much the big businesses in in the world are using these techniques to their advantage. And they don't want you to necessarily learn it because yep. why would they want to help their competitors? And yep. You are some little competitor of Amazon and Google, and well, not yep. at Google. Google, you're a customer of. When you're interacting with it, you're the product. Yeah,
0: yeah, so powerful. So for people listening, go go check out openspacesmarketing.com, and then if you want to get involved, or you want to show up for any of these meetups, Craig's stuff is fantastic. I always get the PDFs and listen to the calls where I can. That's small business steroids, right? Go check that out. On meetup.com, that you sign up. I think it's free. You just pay twenty bucks or whatever you want to donate to some of Craig's charities.
1: Make a donation to a charity if it was valuable. I don't charge anything for it. I probably should, but I don't. No, I it's, it's- to me, it's it's a donation, charitable donation of my time and my knowledge to others, so that somebody else can pick it up and help them grow their business.
0: Yeah, I love that, Craig. You're such a good guy. I'm so glad have you on here. I appreciate your time. I know you have family. I know you've got other clients. You know, you got 101 other things. Thank you for coming and sharing with my audience. I know they're going to value this. And I've just, uh, our relationship has been, you know, very valuable for me and I've always appreciated it. You know, we know a lot of the same people and everyone always speaks of you so highly and your results just speak for themselves. So I'm just, just grateful
2: you are paying this forward. Thank you.
1: Thanks.
2: Take care.